Hello, everybody, and welcome back to DDK Pod, the podcast where three guys, or in this case, two guys who founded an IT company, talk IT industry news and topics that interest us. My name is Julian Day, and with me today is my co-host, Will Dalton. How are you doing, Will? Very well, thank you. We fired JK, didn't yeah. we? <laughs> <laughs> no. no, we haven't. <laughs> so... <laughs> so JK is uh, is busy today. Unfortunately, he can't join us for the recording, but we'll press on with the two of us anyway. We've done it in the past with just me and JK Probably when better, you're on holiday, Will. So <laughs> what are you saying about JK? <laughs> Poor guy. Might be better without me. I'm not sure, uh, given that no, I, I chew up no. most of the word count for all these episodes. <laughs> Anywho, yeah, so we'll crack on without JK for now and then. He may, he may he be able to join us at some know. point, but it, and if he does, we'll, yeah, you know, we'll bring him on in. But yeah, for now, it's just the two of us. So we'll go straight into the news, if we may. Do you want to go first with your news story? Do you want me to go first? your choice heads i'll go first because <laughs> so, we've been waiting so long to do this podcast my news article isn't the most current and up-to-date however i think it's still in the news is this the end of cryptocurrency so oh yeah well that's always it's in the news, always in cryptocurrency is always in the news. it's just just how much people are losing on it and nfts yeah and so whatever. this is this is about i think this is in the economist and it was back in november the 17th and it's actually in the news now because it's all about Sam Bankman Fried, who's the owner of this crypto exchange called FTX, um, which you may or may oh, yeah, not. Oh, yeah, the one that heard. went down, yes, right? Yes. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that went third they, largest they kind of in went the world, under or whatever. So it's the world's largest crypto exchange. And a lot is held by one particular company, I suppose it is crypto.com, which is a crypto trading app, which allows you to download crypto app onto your phone and trade um, in various different cryptocurrencies. Except Sam Bankman-Fried's been up to no good, apparently, or uh-huh. allegedly, should I say. He was destined to be the world's first tr- trillionaire, but then it's all seemingly imploded. Primarily, it seems to do with dodgy activity on the back of what he's been up to, which is sort of lending money from one company he owns to another company he owns, I think basically some, some summarizes it. So the fact oh, that there's yeah. nothing left <laughs> except the millions yes. of dollars that's mysteriously flowed out of the exchange accounts. So, you know, what, what's the point of this article? Apart from highlighting, once again, the dodginess inherent in cryptocurrencies, how you really shouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Well, well, or the dodginess inherent in the sociopaths who run big well, companies, yeah, yeah. I mean, who... <laughs> Not that I'm necessarily saying he is one, but you know what I, I mean. Do. And who own, Who uses cryptocurrency? Have you ever used cryptocurrencies? I mean, they... Uh, no. They're used by... It seems they're used by... They were becoming more popular and more mainstream, and that's why this is a big shot, because this guy was seen as... You know that he was loved by VCs in Silicon oh, Valley. I see, yeah. He was loved by politicians in Washington. He was seen as the acceptable face to cryptocurrencies because when you think cryptocurrency, you sort of think gang lords, <laughs> you know, washing their money through through <laughs> yeah. these exchanges, La- money laundering, and yeah, yeah all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, so so it's imploded. He's currently being charged, I think, with fraud, um, along with others. So yeah, is this the end? The article was: Is this the end of cryptocurrency? I mean, no, obviously, <laughs> but it's probably the end for him, isn't it? God, this keeps happening yeah. between him and Elizabeth Holmes and all these yeah. other people who just start these companies and the... the bubble just keeps bursting. It's just crazy, yeah. isn't it? How close to the wire yeah. these companies run, isn't it? How close to the edge well, they run. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's I a mean, fine I think a lot line, of companies, isn't it? A lot of companies, I guess, are in that position, but but yeah, particularly with the the, the volatility in crypto markets and stuff and good old Elon Musk you know, doing his thing with Tesla and, and uh, accepting and then not accepting. I think they've now gone back to not accepting cryptocurrency to buy the cars or something. I don't know. But, you know, there's been some pretty big fluctuations in that market recently, haven't there? So, Have they? Yeah, crazy stuff. Didn't he invest in, he invested loads 
Elon, didn't he? Didn't he make a fortune on the back of it as well? I, I rather than ramble ignorantly, I'm going to say I can't remember because um, I did read about it a while ago. But I do know for a fact that at one point they were accepting uh, cryptocurrency mm. as a means of paying for Tesla cars, mm. and that caused a big spike in the value of I think it was maybe Bitcoin. I think he had he had a significant stake in Bitcoin, and then he sold that stake. I think I'm right in mm. saying, but I, again, mm. I could be wrong. No, I think but either way, right. he's been responsible yeah. for some pretty major fluctuations in the value of of that cryptocurrency in particular. Yeah. Anyway, it keeps happening. Mm. Okay. So, so my new story, just to uh, it's not going to take long to go through, but it's a thing called Project Leonardo, which is good to highlight, I think, because it's a very progressive move from Sony. So this is in relation to gaming. Uh, being the unofficial gaming bloke of the podcast, I kind of have to keep going back there, I suppose. But Project Leonardo is actually a really cool story because um, what they've done is unveiled on the PlayStation dot blog. Or <laughs> so they're, they're. I'm just looking at it now. I've just realised they've done this. So their blog is called PlayStation dot blog, but the URL is blog dot PlayStation, <laughs> which is annoying. Really confusing. Yeah. Uh, uh, anyway, so basically, what they've done is they've they've uh, revealed this accessibility controller. So for people who have a physical uh, disability or a need for um, for larger buttons or very configurable input, using a, a standard uh, control pad, um, so the one for the PlayStation 5 that comes bundled with it is called the DualSense. Yes. Previous generations were called the DualShock. But effectively, you know, they are a one-size-fits-all, uh, ubiquitous kind of input device for any video gaming system. They're all broadly speaking the same size and shape now. There are a few, you know, years ago that took had some pretty wild experiments like the good old Nintendo 64 controller, which I maintain was great, but a lot of people hated. But yeah, generally you've got the sort of same configuration of two horns that you kind of hold with your uh, your fingers from your index finger through to your little finger and then thumbsticks and a set of buttons across the front of the controller, touchpad type things, and then some triggers that you can operate with your index fingers. So they're pretty standard everything from the Nintendo Switch Pro controller to the Xbox controller to the PlayStation controller, they all look broadly similar to the point where somebody who didn't know anything about the consoles would probably struggle to match up which one went with which console. But Leonardo is completely different, this new this new controller that they've got. So it's arranged as a sort of circle with a joystick underneath it. Mm. Um, and it's extremely configurable in the sense that you can, it's modular, so physically modular. So you can literally pull buttons and quadrants and 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 pieces off it it's very very difficult to to explain this uh, mm. without without a picture but basically it's a sort of circular hub with a a, sp- a spoke that comes out of it on one side which has a joystick or, or if you want it has a thumbstick or whatever that that can be changed and you can change the size of the joystick you can change the size of every button you can change which button is mapped to where you can have a configuration where you have two of these devices and so you use two hands you can have everything on one hand you can use these two devices in conjunction with a standard playstation controller as well and it has uh, various auxiliary ports on it which allow for additional uh, audio or even uh, to support a variety of uh, external switches and third-party accessibility accessories. So if you if you have your own aids that you have that have been custom made for you or that are you know useful to you in another way, um, you can actually plug those into this central hub that I was telling you about, this sort of circular device that it all works from, and uh, and run those as well. So lots of different configurations, but. It's awesome. You know, it's really cool. It's a really interesting bit of design. It's a, it's a good blog article. It's worth just looking through. It's only short. You know, great stuff. I mean, we need to see more of this, right? We need to see more accessibility, more people being able to get into console gaming in particular. It's easier on the PC market where you can pretty much buy any peripheral you want. But 
on the console market, you know, a lot, a lot of people are locked out basically if they can't use a DualSense controller from having a PlayStation Five. You know, I mean, you can plug mouse and keyboard in and US some USB B devices, but I'm not aware of anybody who's actually been producing full blown accessibility controllers specifically for that use case. And it's just great, you know, it's great to see. It's good to see a major manufacturer doing it. Do you get the feedback that you do with the DualSense? I'm I'm honestly not sure if it has all the haptic feedback stuff. I'm just scrolling through the article while we look. Because I I suppose part of the DualSense, by the way, guess what I got from Father Christmas? Was it a PlayStation 5? It was a PlayStation 5, yes. Yes. Good man. (laughs) Welcome to the club. Awesome. Do you like it so I love well? it. I absolutely love it. And yeah, one of the things I love I, about it is the DualSense controller. It is quite an immense piece of kit, actually. Just the amount of different things you can do about it, do with it. Have you tried Astro's Playroom have, that comes yes, bundled with the yes, console? Oh, man. Yes. Like the way, yeah, yeah. it's genius, it is, isn't it? Like it the way is. They, it they is a that. phenomenal piece of kit. So, so hence the question. It would be interesting to see yeah. how much of that intelligence, how much of that I don't believe you do. goes with, that, with the controller. I'm just scrolling through and I, I've done a control control f for haptic and i can't see mm. anything in there so um, i That's don't know whether show. it does have any uh, vibration it might it mm. might um maybe i'm doing it a disservice but it wasn't actually something i remember from when i read the article but anyway i just think it's really really cool no, it and yeah i agree with your feedback on the playstation 5 as well obviously i've recommended it before on the podcast but one thing i did over christmas was i actually put a um a very high speed m.2 flash drive you know uh, a, a yeah, yeah. ssd basically into my playstation uh, yeah. because the thing comes with a piddly ssd it's like 500 gigabytes and the the os takes up a whole bunch of space it's bigger now and it's just it's ridiculous anyway either way i ended up filling it up ridiculously quickly so you just pop the cover off and basically get yourself an m.2 drive yeah it's it's phenomenal you know it loads pretty much as quickly as the uh the SSD that's inside, that actually wired onto the motherboard inside the PlayStation, but it's such an easy process to how do. How big is it? Just add one in. How big's how, what? The size. How much? How much additional space did you add? Oh, you can. I think you can add. Well, I added a terabyte right. because I happened to get an additional M.2 drive because one in my PC blew up, and so I, I got a replacement in the post, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I basically ended up with a spare one. So I, I chucked it in um, in the PlayStation. Um, but you can add up to two terabytes relatively mm-hmm. cheaply these days with M.2 SSDs. The only thing you need to make sure is it doesn't sort of plug in. Well, no, no. So, so what they've done, it's really clever. So they the outer covers come off because uh, Sony have started selling different color rather than just white okay. outer shell for the console, right? So the two big sort of fin things that are on the outside of the console they slide off. So you just put your uh, hand under one end and then you slide uh, okay. it up and off, and it's got these sort of claws that that keep it onto the side of the playstation so you slide it up and off and then there's one access screw uh, that you undo and then you you lift away this small panel that's hidden by the big white plastic panel normally and that is an m.2 and that spot. doesn't impact and your you... warranty or anything like that no, 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 because it's it's all published on the PlayStation blog, okay. how you can do it, and they publish a compatible list of drives. Mm-hmm. So obviously you want to get one that's compatible because it has to have a heatsink on it, they recommend. So most M.2 drives turn up just as a little strip. But this one has got a uh, an actual big sort of bulky metal enclosure that comes on it out of the factory, the one that I bought. Yeah, you basically just plug it in. Uh, there's one screw that you tighten up to to just sort of keep it in place, you know, like, like you would with a, an M.2 on a, on a motherboard. Yeah, then you just put the access panel back in place and then put the big white outer panel back on and you're done. You know, you're literally just done. So you you just fire the PlayStation up and it just says, do you want to format this new drive? And that's it. Good stuff. It's super, super, super smooth. Super, super easy. So yeah, great system. Love it. Anyway, 
Main topic time before we um, spend the whole thing talking about PlayStations. So this week, without Jatinda, unfortunately, but still still definitely worth us going through, we're going to talk about the energy storage conundrum. So energy storage is a massive topic these days, obviously. And what I'm talking about specifically is electrical energy here. So um, over here in the UK, uh, there's a lot of investment going into this. There's a lot of exciting developments that are happening at the moment. And uh, we just thought it was worth touching on a few of those. Obviously, we're quite eco-conscious on the podcast and some of us drive electric vehicles and so on and so forth. And it's going to become more and more prevalent, particularly in the south of England as the number of EVs increases. So I just thought it'd be interesting to go through a few different technologies because it is fascinating stuff, this. And it really opened my eyes in a couple of areas where I was totally unaware of how most of this works most of the time. So the first use case I want to touch on, if that's okay, is the 50 megawatt lithium ion lithium ion battery energy storage system that came online in uh, Cowley, the outskirts of Oxford, uh, in what was described as a, uh, a UK first. So I think this was uh, 2019 or early 2020. I can't actually remember when it came online, but it's not important. Basically, what you've got there is eight kilometers of private wire network, which is installed with the battery. And this massive battery, basically, that's used to store all this energy that comes from uh, renewables and from excess uh, supply in the grid, so it's not lost and all that kind of stuff. It shares the connection to the transmission system with the public and commercial electric vehicle charging hubs across the Oxford City region. So basically, this huge battery is is feeding all of the EV charging hubs across that, that area of the UK. And it it will also benefit, uh, there's a local park and ride in a place called Redbridge, which will feature 38 rapid, ch- ultra-rapid chargers once that's opened up later this year. So the 50 megawatt lithium-ion battery is now active, but the super hub where they're going to have all these chargers just on the outskirts of the city so that people can stop off as they come through. Because Oxford, for those of you who don't know the geography in the UK very well, a lot of major kind of roads and routes run past Oxford. So, And it's quite a popular place to, to sort of go to. So it's fascinating, really, because... They've just put this huge battery and all this infrastructure in place around this city. And it's very much seen as kind of the template that we might end up using moving forwards. Not sure how much of it there is more in the north of England or, in, or further north in England, but I know there's, uh, there's plans to do a lot of this stuff uh, in, uh, more in the south, certainly. Now, what's interesting is the type of battery that they're using there. So lithium-ion is the same kind of battery as you have in your mobile phone. Or if you have an electric car, the same kind of battery you have there. So the good thing about lithium-ion batteries is they don't develop a memory. So uh, those of us who are very old will uh, will remember ha- you know, batteries where you had to make sure you ran them out fully before you charge them up. And we've talked about batteries many times on this podcast, so I won't go too far into it. But essentially, the, uh, yeah, the lithium-ion batteries do not get a memory. But there are lots of other types of battery which are coming along. That term memory, is that, is that a battery term, is it? As in terms of you have to discharge fully. Yeah. So if it's about, the, it's about the, 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 not the efficiency, but the life of the battery, isn't it? It's, it's good health Correct. to do that. Whereas Correct. With lithium, well, it doesn't so matter. Well, so lithium-ion batteries, <laughs> this is where my electric car nerdery is going to come <laughs> through because I did a lot of research before I bought mine. So lithium-ion batteries are healthiest if you keep the charge above 20% and below 80 So... People who are sitting there charging their electric cars up to 100% every night or, or, God forbid, going on holiday and leaving their electric car charged at 100% while they're away are absolutely destroying well, their battery. While plugged in, you mean? Yeah, because because oh, uh, really the battery weird. chemistry... I was told that always to leave it plugged in. Is that not the case? No. Well, Tesla tell you that because the uh, overnight... 
yeah, so overnight there's a there's a there's a thing called phantom drain which happens, which is basically where the car will wake up in the middle of the night and try and download. And modern Audis and others uh, do this, yeah, right? Yeah. Where you know your your car will sit on the drive and you'll leave it there and it'll say ninety eight percent or fifty eight or whatever it is when you get out of it and you'll go inside for the night. When you come out the next morning, it's on like fifty one, and you're like, what the hell? Where did my seven percent go? Well, the answer is. It fires up the traction battery because electric cars have multiple batteries in them, but it fires up the battery that actually moves the wheels and it uses that power to use the computer systems to update all its over-the-air software and all Mm -hmm. that malarkey. And so that's where your charge is going, right? And if you use fast chargers a lot, which use AC rather than DC, that wrecks the chemistry of your battery. But the other thing is if you leave your battery at 100% without discharging it for a long time, that ruins the chemistry of lithium-ion batteries. So you don't want to do that with an electric car Generally, yeah, you get the best battery life by leaving it between twenty and eighty percent at all times. Because once you get below twenty percent, again, the ke- the way it affects the chemistry, it starts to deteriorate the life of the battery. Mm. So you're always looking to some to say somewhere between those two under normal conditions. Now, it may be that some car manufacturers, you know, they just say plug it in every night and it won't be a problem. What you definitely shouldn't be doing under any circumstances is charging your car up to 100% and then going on a three-week holiday because that really will take a huge amount of life out your battery because, again, the chemistry is trying to store so much energy. So you're much better off to leave it at like 50% 50 or something. As long as the phantom drain, you know, waking up in the middle of the night is not going to make it go totally flat. Um, But most of them have their door locks and things like that on a on a separate standard 12 volt car battery anyway so you can still get in the car even if the traction I've done that flat. before I've won I've, yeah. I've drained my battery but you know the normal battery <laughs> the lead acid one yeah I've drained that on an electric car which I found quite ironic so I couldn't actually get in the car so I had to get the AA to, to charge my little lead acid battery so I could get it going again there was nothing wrong with my main battery you know the one that powered the wheels yeah yeah yeah, yeah. but the but the uh, the twelve volt battery yeah. was uh, was flat. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that 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 can happen. That's bad if that happens. Anyway, so so that's just a brief tangent into battery life. So yeah, if you've got an electric car and you want to make sure that when you trade it in or whatever, it still has hundred percent of its life, try and stay between twenty and eighty percent. Although you know, obviously follow the advice in your manufacturer's handbook and everything, but do not charge it and leave it with a full charge for long. I I, I charge mine to hundred percent all the time, but I make sure I'm going, going out. out. The next You're day. going out. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And then I don't charge again until it's, you know, just a, somewhere around 20 to 30% left. And then I charge it up again and then make sure I'm going out the next day. So anyway, lithium ion batteries, which is what this this massive 50 megawatt battery just outside Oxford is all about. You know, very much a, just a standard technology. Just to interrupt you once again. Have... Sorry. Just so I can get an idea what 50, 50 megawatts means. How much, what's the size of battery in your electric car? I have no idea. Uh, what's a comparison uh, oh, I, that I can on. use? Because 50 megawatt for me is... I don't know whether that's big or not big. Ah, damn. So I should remember this off the top of my head. Oh, don't worry if you don't. It, it'd be... Uh... It, I mean, it's not going to be megawatts, is it, for a start? No, yeah. I don't no, know. That that's the thing. Talking, I don't know. I don't know. Is is a car battery not megawatts? Is it 50 kilowatts or... It's kilowatts. It's kilowatts, kilowatts 100%. Is it? Yeah. No, no, no. It's kilowatts. It's kilowatts. Okay. So the uh, the battery in my EV is a 40 kilowatt 40, battery. And that's, is, that gives you how many miles? Uh, about, uh, it depends whether it's summer yeah, or winter. Yeah, but in general. Obviously, it's, it's in very general, different. In general. in general, about 130 miles, okay. something All like right. that. But then I, I deliberately went for a very city electric car. I've got a Nissan Leaf. Right. And I got the smaller battery yeah, yeah. size because I didn't want to pay silly money for a bigger so this is a thousand times bigger than that. A mega is a thousand yeah, times yeah. bigger than yeah, a yeah, killer. Yeah. So it's about a thousand times bigger than than a sort of normal 
standard electric car that can go for about 120. No, that's good. Well, yeah, that so you got fi- you got 50, 50 megawatts. Yeah. yeah. So so it's it's just over a thousand, yeah. right? Because my car no, is full. But remember, my my car is compared to some modern EVs that have come out from from much more expensive manufacturers and stuff. My car is pretty much sticks and stone stuff. You sure. know, like the technology in it is is very old. It charges very it slowly. Shunning, it could mean that you that that battery yeah. could charge a thousand Nissan Leafs fully. Uh, over, over, over a thousand, because mine's 40, mine's sure, 40 gotcha. megawatt, yep. excuse me, and this is 50 megawatts. So you're talking, over you know, a thousand, a thousand yeah. 1,200 yeah. or something. I don't know. That's good. Anywho, so you can, you can charge a, and that, you know, an electric cars use a lot of juice. So, yeah. you know, that's, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what that figure would be in terms of the number of homes, yeah. for example. Number of kettles, number of phones. Exactly. But however, <laughs> what's interesting about this is there are other methods of storage, right? And some of them are very cool. And there's some new technology coming in this area, which is really interesting. So have you ever heard of, and I don't know how to pronounce this properly, a vanadium redox flow battery or vanadium, vanadium, I don't know which way you pronounce it, redox flow battery? Of course I haven't. Of course you haven't. <laughs> no. So this kind of battery is touted as having a longer lifespan than lithium-ion models and is regarded as easier to scale, but the technology is not as mature. So the problem with lithium-ion batteries is they very much, as we just have had that very good little chat about electric vehicles there, lithium-ion batteries do have a lifespan. And so over time, they can store, after a number of charging cycles, and we'll all have experienced this with our old mobile phones or laptops or whatever, they start. They don't get a memory in the same way as the really old batteries from back in the day did, where if you ran it down to 50% and then started charging it up again, it would literally never, ever allow you to expand that first 50%. You've, you've created a memory in the battery and then it won't uh, ever work properly again. But lithium-ion batteries, as we were just talking about, particularly if you leave them with a lot of energy stored in them, the chemistry gets affected of the battery and they can no longer store as much energy. So my car has a little... A display that you can bring up in it which says how much life the battery has left compared to its original oh, capacity handy. so the, yeah and and the first if you buy a second-hand electric car which i did the first thing you check is that yeah, yeah. is how, how what what does the car tell you the remaining battery capacity is and is it still a hundred percent so what does yours say hundred percent it's got it's still a hundred percent as efficient yeah. as it was when you first bought it yes pretty much yes yeah. so well, mine can good. still charge up to the to the brochure spec maximum number of miles uh is that in what the that summer, means? at least not necessarily the battery hasn't degraded because i know they build a whole load of contingency in batteries don't they, they do yeah. so you've got a lot of redundant yeah, yeah. cells and yeah, yeah. stuff and they and you have a computer in the battery that manages gotcha. which cells yeah. are used so once you get ones that are pooped you know it, it switches over or it manages the capacity yeah, yeah. across the over and again you know my my car is particularly unsophisticated compared to the really snazzy you know modern Audis and BMWs and whatever else, you know, they've got demonstrably better Other systems in them than my car does. Yeah, whatever, right? I mean, not Tesla. You know, it's, it's a basic. <laughs> well, no, theirs is way more sophisticated as well. But like Porsche in particular, with their charging architecture inside their cars, is completely different. You know, it's very, very cool stuff. Mm. But anyway, the point remains: on any car, doesn't matter how expensive it is, eventually that lithium-ion battery is going to start degrading in terms of how much power it can store. And the drop-off can be quite dramatic if you mistreat it. So if you're constantly using fast chargers or you're, as I say, leaving your car charged up at 100% plugged in while you're away on holiday and wrecking the battery that way, stuff like that, uh, unless the car's got magic systems to prevent that happening, of course, stuff like that, you know, and it's the same thing with this 50 megawatt battery outside Oxford. You know, it's just a fundamental fact of life with lithium-ion batteries that they're going to they're degrade. 
So what is a flow battery? So flow batteries are stored as liquid electrolyte that is, so energy is stored as a liquid electrolyte that is recharged by renewable power. At the moment, vanadium is the element of choice or vanadium is the element of choice. A lot of work is going into organic compounds to use as a sort of substrate for, for storing the chemical energy. So lithium ion batteries, they have a head start in grid scale applications because they already bank, you know, backup power for hospitals, offices, towns, you know, all this stuff. But they don't scale up well to larger sizes needed to provide the backup power for a city. So going back to our 50 megawatt battery that we were talking about at the beginning, that couldn't power the whole of Oxford. You know, it's never going to be that kind of scale. And, and trying to scale lithium, lithium batteries up that high is very, very challenging. So flow batteries come in at this point because they store electrical charge in tanks of liquid electrolyte that's pumped through electrodes to extract the electrons. And then the spent electrolyte returns back to the tank. So it's pumping this, this stuff round. And when a solar panel or a turbine provides electrons, the pumps push the spent electrolyte back through the electrodes where the electrolyte is recharged and then returned to the holding tank now full of electricity, effectively. So scaling up batteries to store more power simply requires a bigger tank, okay. right? So not lots of little teeny-weeny cells like you have in a, in a lithium-ion battery, but vanadium has become a very popular electrolyte component because the... Vanadium, metal charges and discharges. Vanadium or vanadium. It's spelled okay. V-A-N-A-D-I-U-M. And this is the liquid inside this? Yeah, this is the liquid electrolyte. So it's the stuff a bit like the acid or whatever in a, uh, or the acid compound. So I've never a, heard of old... vanadium or vanadium. No. Where'd you get it from? Sainsbury's or Tesco's? Come in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, two for one. Where'd you get it? Is it, is it underground? Is it mined or...? I genuinely don't okay. know the answer to that. Because you know the problem with batteries, especially with lithium, is that mm. it, you know the the mines and the and the culture, oh, which yeah. are, you know the countries of which you get this material, are, are usually fairly suspect. It would be interesting to know. Well, we've talked that, about this a few we have, times, haven't, haven't we? we? Yeah. So, so it's the it's the cobalt and uh, rare earth metals that are used in the anodes in the batteries and mining. Yeah. Terrible yeah, conditions I'm wondering if in, this applies to this countries. to this new material. I actually don't know what the uh, what the electrodes are made of in vanadium batteries, but it's possible that it's the same. The other problem is obviously the lack of recycling. So lithium ion batteries are not recycled because it isn't cost effective mm. at the moment. And that I'm sure it will be soon. Me- mental. I'm sure it will be. Yeah, soon, yeah. Well, so- someone needs to get yeah, on yeah. it, don't they? So anyway, yeah. So this this electrolyte gets pumped through these tanks, and it's um, it's all very very space agey. And the great thing about it is that it discharges reliably. So vanadium is a metal and it charges... I bet it's a rare earth metal as well, isn't it? I bet it is. I honestly don't yeah. know. I should have looked that up, actually, I shouldn't I? It we can Google it while we're talking. We'll, we'll find yeah. out. It doesn't degrade as quickly as lithium ion, right, in terms of how much energy it can store. So it, it will go on for much longer. But predictably enough, now that it's becoming more popular, the price of vanadium has shot up in recent years. Uh. And, you know, it's it's the same old story, right, you know? And, and a leading alternative to replace it is with organic compounds. So this is fascinating, right? So rather than having a metal that stores electrons, why not have something organic in your tank? Well, like a carrot. No, but, you know. That's organic. Biological rather than mined metal, right? right? So that you could cultivate it or something. Molecules can be precisely tailored to meet the designs, the designer's needs. As uh, Tainbao Lau, a flow battery expert at Utah State University, says. So basically, organics tend to degrade and need replacement after a few months, but those compounds can be very carefully tailored. So the problem with it is at the moment, if you scale up a battery and you fill it with organic compounds, 
they don't last. Mm. So that you would need to be refilling these tanks all the time. And that's a pain in the ass compared to a vanadium battery where vanadium battery or whatever it is, where you can just chuck the electrolyte in there and it will last for thousands and thousands and thousands of cycles. Of cycles. Yeah. yeah. Without you having to replace it. So some compounds work only with a very powerful uh, acid or very basic electrolytes. And they can the problem is that they can eat away at the pumps and prove very dangerous if the tanks leak as well. So Organic batteries have got two two major problems at the moment to get over. One is the degradation being too quick, and the other is that they need a very high acidity environment, which just eats eats the infrastructure, and then you end up with you know liquid pouring out everywhere, full of all dangerous organic compounds and acid, which is not great. So there are various different types of techs being developed in this space for things like semi-solid flow batteries and even stuff like nanotechnology batteries, so nano-network batteries in the future. But it's interesting, isn't it, right? So it's very different to the lithium-ion battery that we all know and, and love and, and have to live with in every last device that we have scattered around us. The major issue at the moment, the reason that this isn't getting taken up more widely, is that flow batteries suffer from inferior cycle energy efficiency compared to lithium-ion batteries. So what do I mean by that? Well, basically, when you charge a battery up, how much of the energy that you're putting in can it actually take on? And at the moment, flow batteries are somewhere between 50 and 80%, depending on how they're configured. So lithium-ion batteries are, are, are higher than that. So that's in comparison to a, a, a similarly sized lithium battery. So you're only, for every electro, electron that you're putting in, only 50 to 80% of them are being captured in flow batteries, whereas in a lithium-ion battery, obviously, well, they're comparing to a lithium-ion battery, so that would be a, effectively 100% there. They're not 100%. You know, you don't capture every... No battery captures every single electron that's put in. So there is always an inefficiency when you're charging. But still, you know, it's uh, they're a bit lower. But they're probably the future because don't need massive amounts of lithium-ion, don't need massive amounts of, yeah, of those same compounds. You know, when you read the news, right? I mean, I think I, battery technology is the key, isn't it, to renewables, isn't it? I think without unlocking that, the, mm. the future... Well. Uh, I think it's, it's funny it's, you say that, but yeah. yeah. But the trouble is, every time I, d- I don't know about you, every time I read the news, there's always every other day there's breakthrough in battery technology. Do you know what I mean? Do you do you ever you sort of read this a lot? And there's companies that have that are valued at huge amounts of money just because of the future, the kind of future proof in the value of their company based off the, the research they're doing, based off what you've just been talking about. But it never seems to come to fruition. I don't know about you. There's always a lot of press about it, about the different chemistries, about the different makeup of batteries. But it, it's never, I don't think there's, do you know what I mean? There's never been this breakthrough from ultimately lithium ion, which is, which is what all our battery techs based off that currently. Well, there's actually, there's another reason as well, which I was going to come on to. So do you want to have a guess at what the best way to store electricity actually is? Not in a battery. Yeah, not in a battery at all, right? So I had no idea this was a thing until I started doing the research for this episode because I just thought, oh yeah, batteries, you know, they're the, yeah. they're, the, they're the future or whatever. But fascinatingly enough, we've been storing energy for years, years and years and years, effectively in batteries, but they're not batteries as we would recognize them. So PSH is the top mechanism in the world right now for storing electricity. And it massively outstrips everything else, like massively, massively outstrips everything else. Pumped storage hydroelectricity so you pump water up a hill Uh, using electricity and then you let it run back down again and it generates more electricity when it runs back down or or it replaces the energy that it used to pump it up because of gravity (laughs) yeah so rather than just hydroelectrics 
wave power or, or rivers, you know, which are just running constantly, you deliberately pump water from a, a lake at the bottom into a lake at the top. And then you just let it shoot downhill and drive a hydroelectric turbine. So basically, you, you can store an enormous amount of potential energy that way, like massive, you know. So, so pump storage is by far the largest capacity form of grid energy storage available. And as of 2020, the United States Department of Energy, Energy Global Energy Storage Database. What? Sorry. The United <laughs> States Department of energy, of energy Global Energy Storage Depart uh, Storage Database. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, there should have been a comma Say in, that there, when uh, in my notes. Apologies. Uh, reports that PSH accounts for around ninety-five percent of all active tract storage installations worldwide, with total installed throughput capacity of over one hundred and eighty-one gigawatts. Good old gigawatts from gigawatts. Uh, Back to the Future. Yeah. So, and of about of which about twenty-nine gigawatts are in the United States and the total installed storage capacity is over 1.6 terawatts. So Blimey. there is a there is an enormous and I mean enormous amount of storage capacity in the world already but it's using water. It's not using batteries at and all. it's not and very portable no is it? That's, that's no, well, well, okay, you can't so, put like a little so lake in may, your car. Okay so you know there are big disadvantages to this, which is that PSH is is it requires a, a big uh, lake, a specialist site. So, well, it requires a big lake and a big hill. Big lake and right? a big so hill. So you can't just build yeah, it on, exactly. on a, on a flat a... area, otherwise it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so I you need anywhere. something that has yeah. So you need something that's got a geographical height. You need freely available water. You can't do it in the middle of a desert or something where it's all going to yeah. just you know evaporate. The suitable sites are therefore likely to be in hilly, yeah. mountainous regions and potentially in areas of natural beauty, yeah. which is obviously not it's good. It's hydroelectricity, right? ultimately, just... isn't it? It is. Yeah, effectively it is. And, and effectively that's what what dams are doing, right? So yeah. where you're damming up exactly. uh, water and then letting it pour through, you know, Hoover Dam, wherever. Many recent proposed project, projects, at least in the US, uh, avoid highly sensitive or scenic areas and some propose to take advantage of brownfield locations such as disused mines because so the water doesn't have to be above ground either. yeah it could, it could flow just underground yeah fill a mine up right and then have it just pour down through from the top of the mine down through the bottom of the mine you know and and often those kind of areas are not uh, not easily reused and then uh, the other one that uh, that's out there and is already working and and is uh, is used uh, in quite a lot of areas is compressed air Okay. So basically, you you just get a massive, great big pressure. What's the word I'm looking for? Not crucible, not volume either. Um, basically, a big a big cell thing, a big a great big uh, tank, basically. Yeah. And you pump it full of compressed air, and then you release the yeah. air, and that then generates energy as it comes out. So it drives a turbine, and it so creates like, uh, almost like wind energy. It's like energy, the concept right? of fusion, isn't it? In that you you put amount of energy into something in order to get a lot more energy out so fusion is you're putting energy in to to fuse atoms together which yeah. in doing so releases yeah. a large amount of energy so it'd be a similar to i'm putting some energy in to get this water up a hill into a lake in order that i'm going to get a lot more energy when it comes back down out again is that is that the general concept behind all of this yeah i mean effectively yeah so you're just storing potential energy right yeah but what's interesting about things like compressed air is that there are there are issues with the byproducts. So when you compress air, what happens? It gets hot, right? 
I mean, the more yeah. you compress it, the more the molecules bang into each other, the more heat is generated. So Could the problem is heat, it's right? not, again, what exactly, right? So there are, there are three different types of solutions now with modern technologies that can deal with the heat buildup when the air is initially compressed. So there's, hang on, this is difficult. Add, add a... Go on. Adiabatic storage, yes, right, yes. which retains the heat from compression and reuses like it. it when the air is expanded to produce the power. Adiabatic. Ad, ad, adiabatic. Ad, I don't know. Um, <laughs> expected. Yeah. So the expected efficiency of that is around seventy percent. So essentially, of the energy you put in, but in theory, you could reach hundred percent if you could capture all the heat. There's diabetic storage, which takes the heat and dissipates it into the atmosphere via intercoolers. Okay. Um, uh, where the air is released to go through turbines as, it, as it's needed. Um, and so you basically dissipate the, the heat away rather than trying to do anything with it, which obviously loses you some of the energy that you put in. And then there's isothermal storage, which involves using heat exchangers to try and always keep the internal and external temperatures the same. So as the air is compressed, the heat dissipates into the atmosphere and the air is released to drive the turbine and produces electricity. Heat is brought in from the external environment you know, via heat exchange with the air in order to to re rewarm the whole process up. So yeah, you know, it's it's fascinating really. But the main problem with it is that it isn't very consistent. So as you release the air, obviously if you start with something that has a very high, a very, very dense compressed amount of air inside it, right, then uh, it's going to come out very quickly at first. So it's going to, you know, it's absolutely going to fly out when you first take the plug out. And then as there's less and less pushing force behind it, because the amount of compressed air in the vessel is vessel, that's probably what I was looking for, mm. is less, it comes out slower. So you, you generate less electricity, the, the lower the compression ratio is inside oh, your, these, your and these vessel. Are all for, these all seem to be large-scale solutions for grid, aren't they? they they're are. not for cars yeah, they're or they're not for... Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they're, they're not for the domestic home or whatever, but it's important because yeah, yeah. Why, why does all this matter, right? Well, because decarbonizing heavy duty transportation and, and things like that require technology that haven't really been invented yet. You know, electrification of things like big trucks and stuff include, you know, ways of doing it includes high, uh, high energy density batteries, fuel cells running on green hydrogen, you know, combustible, uh, but carbon free energy carriers such as green hydrogen or ammonia or whatever. But it's not clear where the boundaries for these technologies actually might lie. But energy storage, especially on a massive scale, is very important because your next generation batteries and energy, chemical energy carriers, thermal storage, things like steam, molten salt, uh, all sorts of stuff. You know, you can use a lot of things to store energy. You can even just use gravity. So you can just winch a really heavy rock or a bit of well, cement atoms, up something. Every atom has its own energy. Exactly. And then, and then you drop that and that generates electricity as it drops. Yep. You know, there's lots of ways of storing potential energy, but we have to be able to convert energy easily from electricity and heat and motion into chemical bonds. And we need, you know, we need to be able to convert things like, you know, electricity from green hydrogen into, you know, combustible fuels, for example, in a way that's efficient. And if we could power heavy duty transportation with things like batteries or or what have you or green hydrogen you know we would change the way that our world our world works and we would be able to move towards a carbon free future and storage is a huge part of that and and it's you know it's also important for managing networks you know for managing the grid so that we have enough power available when there's a particular spike so that's often what the the pumped 
uh, storage with the water is used for at the moment. You know, they release a bunch of water if they need to generate extra electricity because demand is particularly high. So I just thought it was a really interesting thing to canter through, that's all. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, it, it, there's lots of different areas to it, but we're, we're looking at a world now where we may end up in the next few years or few decades moving away from massive over-dependence on lithium-ion, and that can only be a good thing, right? Because we can't recircle those at the moment. So, yeah, Maybe. That was it. Yeah, Any- I'd say, I mean, it is very interesting. It's nice to think outside of battery technology. I think that, mm. I, I, you know, going back to what's portable and what's not portable, it's difficult to see mm. how, you know, hydroelectricity or, or, or the, all the others that you've mentioned, how they can be poured. They're not really, are they? So it's still quite no, a dependency I mean, on battery technology, just making... Ch- yeah, I don't think the idea is ever that you're going to have like a, a heavy goods vehicle towing a mountain <laughs> it with a lake <laughs> or on just the got top. It's got a big tank of water. <laughs> exactly, yeah. I don't think you're going to see like triple-decker trucks with big waterfall fun, though, tanks, you know. I mean, that'd be great. Let's, let's all move to that. <laughs> Moving mountains. Sure there you universe. go. That would be their catchphrase. Yeah. Oh, very good. I'm sure there's a uh, there's a parallel universe out there somewhere <laughs> where it's true, if multiverse theory is in fact true. But no, I mean, that's not the idea. The idea there really is just that we need better and more efficient and less geography-defined ways or constrained ways of storing energy. And the more we can shift to generating lots of energy, green energy, when the going's good, you know, when the sun's shining and the wind's blowing, the more we can store and the more we can then release as needed in the most efficient way possible, the more we can, you know, we can decarbonize, which is where we all need to get to look after our planet. Indeed. That's important stuff. It is. Anywho, that's that. Good stuff. Any closing thoughts? No. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Right, we'll move on to very quickly to the recommendation section of the show, if we may then. So did you want to go first? Yeah, I do. Or do you want me to go first? So I listened to something called, I listened to a program on Spotify audio podcast series. I don't know if you've heard of these. They may have been going for a while, but I listened to something called Case 63, which is a a fictional story. It's a story that's been released as a series of podcasts. As a series of podcasts. That's fascinating. It's a neat little thing they do, Spotify. And this one was, uh, it's called Case 63. It's 10 episodes, each of 10 minutes. 10 minutes per episode. Oh, wow, that's short. It I is. was expecting like an hour each yeah. or something. No, but it's good because they're short little things. You know, you, you could just listen to while waiting for a bus or or you've got 10 minutes, you can do that and all the rest of it. So nice little time segment, actually. So it's 10 of 10. It starred Julian, Julianne Moore and Oscar, Oscar Isaac. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So not not, yeah, not like, you know, proper people yeah. doing it. They've, they've obviously put their money where their mouth is. Um, it's a time travel yeah. parallel universe. Of course, it is. You know, get get the people involved. Of course, it yeah, is. Of course, it is. Multiverse, very popular. It's good. Thanks for it's that. It's good. Marvel. It's slick. Very good actors. Obviously, with that quality, it's an interesting story. Everyone loves time travel. Yeah. It sort of reminded me a bit of what Radio Four do. I don't know. You know, it's sort of like builds off you know even sort of like the archers. You know, Radio Four's been doing it forever. <laughs> I, I, you laugh, but it is like that kind of short segments of a longer story. You know, but but done yeah, in a yeah, yeah. done in a new way. I loved it. I thought it was really good, really good production. It's not a very original story, but it's definitely worth a, li- a listen. And I like the concept. I like the concept that they're doing Spotify and doing these audio podcast series. So highly recommend. Very good. Yeah, and I guess you can because they're ten minutes long. You can just do another snippet of story while you're on the train or wait exactly, for yeah, it's your beer to arrive in a pub or yeah. whatever. I did them all in know, one go, and- of course. <laughs> 
Of course, of course. <laughs> but, but, but I think they're designed exactly for that, just while you're waiting for a friend or whatever, you know, and you could get, you don't sort of, you know, there's nothing worse where you're interrupting sort of halfway through a chapter or halfway through something because you've got to sort of like rewind it to the beginning in order to get that context oh, yeah. again. Yeah, yeah, but it's because yeah. it's 10 minutes and they're all quite atomic, each of these each of these episodes. I think it, it's, it's, a, it's a neat way of doing it. So, yeah. That sounds incredibly cool. Yeah, I really like that. Yeah, very good idea. Okay, cool. Well, I shall move on to my recommendation, I think, if that's okay, mm. unless you've got any more bits and pieces on that yeah. one. Good stuff. No, I really, I, I think that's a great idea. I'm just, yeah, I'm fascinated by that because the idea of 10 minute long segments is... Yeah, maybe yeah, something we I, should do. Yeah, it's, it's... Maybe there's a 10 minute thing hmm. we can... Uh, 10 minute on, in, well, on a yeah, particular topic. A te- a te- on a particular topic, yeah. like a bite size yeah. type yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, that's actually a really interesting idea. We should think about that. So my recommendation, uh, what am I going to do this week? I'm just trying to think. I've heard so many things since the last time we recorded <laughs> an episode. <laughs> so many months have <laughs> gone. Yeah. Well, going, yeah, I've so we had Christmas and... And a whole bunch of stuff which which got in the way. Talk about the PlayStation Five again. The game I got with, with my PlayStation Five, I got it from my son. He bought he bought my first game. Not sure if it's appropriate or not. It's Uncharted. Have you played Uncharted? Oh yeah. Uh, okay. So I've played. I mean, Uncharted is a is a massively long series of games. Yeah, so yeah. I think I played Uncharted two and oh, three. Okay. Yeah. This is the. So I know them pretty well, but yeah, I haven't played the the one on PlayStation Five. It no. Is um, awesome. But... I loved it. I loved it. Yeah. And it, despite it being a 16, I did I did get my, uh, maybe this is totally irresponsible, but my little <laughs> my boy did play a few, a few episodes oh, or know, help me out on, on a few of the different bits. Different styles of parenting, you know. <laughs> oh, God, don't, don't write to me. You know, I, I acknowledge my failures as a parent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, so I haven't actually had it. My, the problem is a lot of the time, I, I know what I'm going to talk about. A lot of the time my wife is monopolizing the TV in, the, uh, man cave. in the main room. Which man I, cave. Oh, well, yeah, if only I had the space. But yeah, so a lot of the time I can't get on the PlayStation 5. But yeah, Elden, Elden Ring is the game that I got stuck Elden into. My Ring, God, okay. that game is absolutely fantastic, like, like unbelievably good. But it's a. Uh, it's. It, I'd be warned. It is extremely difficult. So I'll, I'll do that as a recommendation next. Next. This time. is all we're going to do now from now on. Is it PlayStation Five recommendations? That's <laughs> yeah. It. Let's do it. It's going to be great. Just into won't mind. Anywho, no. So what I'm going to talk about is uh, I'm actually going to recommend trying to get your wife into or significant other. So no sexism here at mm-hmm. all. But if you have a disinterested person in your household who's never played video games before, try and get them into it. That's what I'm going to recommend because okay. that's what I did over Christmas. Uh-huh. So my wife, nothing to do with her being female, but just because she didn't grow up in a household where anybody played video games and that has never happen. really had much of an interest in them. She, over the Christmas period, because my son, who's four, uh, William, my eldest, he's starting to get a bit interested in games now. Oh, yeah. So I've got a Nintendo Switch, which is a very family-friendly console, as well as my PlayStation. Not that the PlayStation isn't, but, you know. Nintendo uh, always geared it and... towards that, though, didn't they? They always Yeah, well, they're, they're kind of, they've got stuff for all ages, more, I think, than the other mm-hmm. the other console manufacturers do. I think they, they tend to market towards an older audience but i mean i play the switch a lot you know various different games but but yeah so i i started my wife off on um uh, on mario galaxy okay which is a game from 2008 but is one of the best games ever made you know absolutely phenomenal and i i played it to death when it came out on switch a little while ago as part of a sort of three game collection of old mario game but i started her off on that and it's amazing how how fulfilling it is to watch somebody who is motivated to do it but has never played games just watching them taking those baby steps, like learning to use an analog stick, if that makes sense, yeah. you know, just even move a character on the screen and start to dial in that muscle memory and everything. And she's, yeah, she's really taken to it and she's enjoying it now. So yeah, if you have somebody in your house who, especially somebody who has previously poo-pooed video games, not that Emma did really, but you know, has, has never really seen the value in it. 
And it, it, it's amazing because I kind of get to live vicariously through her now because there's a whole world of games out there. And obviously I know what most of them are because <laughs> I read the gaming press every day, but she doesn't. And so I've started suggesting things. She's going, oh, that sounds interesting. And a while ago, she was watching me play uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, which has a very, very good and very female-focused narrative because it's, it's, it's a woman who's the main character. Now that she's started to get to grips with Mario, she's sort of said, oh, I might have a go at that at some point because the controls will be kind of the same, right? And I'm like, well, yeah, they are pretty similar. You know, the way you move someone forward is the same in any game. And it's, yeah, it's it's been a really interesting process. So yeah, definitely something to try if you can. Something's interesting is how easily Archie, Archie, Archie's now fortnighted up and plays, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. How easily they adopt to controlling, you know, the controllers, be it through the... PlayStation mm. 5 or the keyboard, more keyboard mouse orientated through the PC, they just adopt it. And to like, like well, the minds nature. of children are incredible, yeah, aren't they? It? I mean, it's just they, amazing. Yeah. I mean, my four year old struggles a bit because when he can't get the character to do what he wants, he gets very quickly frustrated. But I think as he gets a little bit older, it's going to get easier and easier. Yeah. But yeah. So definitely worth Good a try. Stuff. So I think that's the episode. It's taking a little longer than I thought it would, but we've done pretty well, I think, without Jatinder. So thanks very much for everybody who's been listening to us today. It's been really good fun talking these things through with, with Will. Hope you've enjoyed listening to it. If you want to get in touch with us, you can. We're available on ddkpod at ddklimited.com. That's ddkpod at ddklimited.com with limited spell out in full on the email. If you want to get in touch with us on Twitter, we're at ddklimited or one word at ddklimited. And on LinkedIn, we are Dalton Day Candola. So that's the show. Thanks very much, Will. Cheers, now. Been good to talk to you today. Awesome. And we'll catch up with you all in another month. Thanks very much. See ya.